right. Thank you so much. I, if you're sitting close to me, I, during worship time, I sit down and I scribble some notes and I stand back up and then something else comes up and I scribble some notes because I'm just thinking and I, and I really, 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 really appreciate the worship time that we get together. And you should too because maybe it makes the sermon a little shorter today because like 98% of what I'm talking about was in those words. It was incredible. I'm just like, wow, that's, that's cool. Um, here's a couple of them. The authority of Jesus. We sang that, I think, in the first song. And then the holy name of Jesus. We'll get to that. But I want to show you something. And this is a, a song that we'll close with, but it's a good opener into what, how we're going to talk today. So we did something uh, in, in those things I mentioned there, the authority of Jesus and the holy name of Jesus, and then we'll do it in the last song too. We did something very like ancient Israelite in our worship. We directed our praise toward Yahweh. So we will sing this in the last song, who rescued me from the grave? Yahweh, Yahweh, the one true God of Israel, okay? Now in the next stanza, we sing this. Who gets the glory in praise? Nobody but Jesus. So in the first stanza, it's very ancient Jewish worship type thing. We're directing all our honor toward Yahweh, the one true God of, of Israel. And the second stanza, we've redirected that toward this now holy name of Jesus. It's really, really interesting, and it's really, really important to what we're talking about today. So with that, just keep that in the back of your mind. My name is Jim Nelson. My pleasure to be with you. It's been 14 months, as a matter of fact. Who's, who's counting? <laughs> Nobody's counting. <laughs> but yeah, it has been 14 months. So there may be some rust that I got to knock off and um, maybe cotton mouth too. That'll come up. You know, to, but I'm really excited to be here today for what we're about to talk about in the next episode of our Truly Truly series. So uh, I do like to start, especially since it's been 14 months and there's, there's a lot of new people here in the church. Just some fun facts about Jim Nelson, which um, I only have two, and, and they're really not, and they're not about me. So um, Kristen, my wife, was going to be here this morning, but she's going to bring my mom um, to see, to, to church. It's about the third time she's come to church since they moved up here, but uh, it's the first time she'll see me preach. But anyway, my wife is, her birthday is today. So if you see her on the way in and out, and she's 53, I asked, I asked, okay. I said, you know, I'd like to tell them. She's like, yeah, absolutely tell them. She's proud to be 53. So that's really cool. Um, and then the second, oh yeah, has to do with the sermon also is uh, I watch Making a Murderer on Netflix. Any taker out? Has anybody seen that? Yeah, all right. There's some takers on there. It is, um, it's interesting. I, I love the legal aspect of the legal maneuvering. And so I was watching that. I haven't finished, so if you don't spoil it for me. I don't know. I really don't know who did it. But um, anyway, so if we get, what you'll see, I, I kind of based the timing or the presentation of this kind of on a legal argument. I'm going to go through some facts as, as an opening argument, and then we're going to give some evidence, and then we'll close with the closing argument that um, makes the case for us today. That's the plan. I also... <laughs> All week long, have Toby Keith's How Do You Like Me Now in my head. <laughs> so if I start humming, that's what it is. Today we're in John chapter 5, so as you're getting to that in your Bible or your app, I need to do a little setup work, and this is the opening argument part of it. Um, I want to establish some historical facts that are fundamental to the story that we'll 
give it some depth, some more content, and I'll just get started right away here with fact number one. Fact number one, in the Old Testament, especially in the books of the prophets and the Psalms, but really scattered throughout, there's a longing for Yahweh, the holy name of the one true God of Israel, there's a longing for Yahweh to come and rescue his people from another oppressive empire. Kind of, you've done it in Egypt once, God, let's see you do it again against Babylon and Assyria. So here's just a sample of these yearnings. I just got a couple. Ezekiel 34, 11 through 12. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, Yahweh, Yahweh himself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And another example, Isaiah 43, 5 through 7. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, and I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So the first fact, over and over, the ancient people of Israel longed for Yahweh to once again come and save them. And it wasn't just a longing. I think that's a, not the, quite the right word, so I came up with a right phrase, but it's an expectation expressed in a confident hope. God himself will come back and save his people, just like he did in Egypt, just like he did in the wilderness wanderings, to reestablish his power and authority over the chaos that they were currently in. So are you on board with fact number two? Good. I'm sorry, fact number one. Fact number two, each of the gospel authors in the New Testament introduces Jesus as God showing up to rescue his people. Now, there may be different styles, and there may be different emphasis, and even reorder them like John does in his um, book. But the point is the same. Yahweh has come to save. And Jesus' baptism is critical to this claim that they're making. But with a little twist. If you read through the Old Testament, you read of Yahweh showing up as a burning bush or a pillar of fire, a cloud of smoke, even a quiet voice in a cave to Elijah. But the baptism is different. And I'm going to just throw Mark 1 up here just to show this because it's nice and short so we can work through it really quickly. But it says this, In those days Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, uh, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. I give you fact number two. The gospel authors depicted, and, depicted the hoped for and promised rescue of Yahweh as the voice and authority of God the Father, the embody of, embodiment of God, with humanity, bonded and fused into you know, human cells as Jesus Christ, and living and operating with the love and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. A little twist on that hope for rescue. 
because the people knew a pillar of fire. They knew a cloud of smoke. But here comes this very complex and very dimensionalized Yahweh revealing himself in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the baptism. Very important to our story. Finally, fact number three. Jesus' followers actually lived like they believed fact number two. Okay? They believed that Jesus was Yahweh, the one true God of Israel, and their lives reflected, reflected it. I could point to a number of scriptures and acts or letters in the, to the churches, but I'll just summarize that in early Christianity, there were Jew, Jewish believers who began a robust movement that sung hymns worshiping and honoring to Jesus, like we discussed when I walked up here. Everything prior to that was directed toward Yahweh, God, and now it's being directed toward Yahweh, God in some cases, and Jesus alongside that. They also prayed to Jesus alongside God. The Passover meal becomes communion in our day, right? Passover meal becomes a reminder of Jesus' rescue and not only Yahweh's rescue from Egypt. Blessings were given in the name of Jesus and many more examples. But fact number three, his followers lived like Jesus is the human embodiment of Yahweh God. His power, his authority, his justice, grace, all of it. They lived like Jesus is Yahweh. All right, the problem with this is, as we read through the gospel stories, they never really say it. And as a linear thinker, I go, just give me the facts. You know, tell me, tell me something and then tell me that, yep, this is God in human form saving his people. But they never really say that. What they do is stuff like John chapter 5. So let's turn to John chapter 5, okay? John 5 starts off with a well-known, often-preached story about Jesus and a lame man at the pool at Bethsaida, or Bethesda, either one. And if you remember the story, Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? If you read Shannon's email this week, you got that question out. A very, it's a very direct question. The man doesn't respond with a direct answer. He kind of hums and haws about why he couldn't get to the pool to be healed. And we, get then, we start off our reading with Jesus' response to those excuses. And we'll read through verse 19. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, he took up his bed and walked. Total aside, I, I just, as I'm reading through and studying this, I wonder when he was healed. I don't know, was he laying there healed and then all of a sudden realized he, he was healed? Or... He had to make the first movement to, oh, he said to get up and walk, and he made the first movement. He was, I don't know which one it is. That's a total aside. Spent, like, way too much time thinking about that one. Now, the day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man, and this, whenever we see Jews in this paragraph, it's the religious Jews, the re religious Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, now who is this man who said this to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, the healed man, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. 
the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Then there's this interesting, the way John writes it. He just said, this is why the Jews are persecuting him, and now he goes straight into, this is why the Jews were seeking to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that's only persecutable, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, week three, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does the same. That, that, that is really, really important. For whatever the father does, that which the father is doing, is the son, the son does the same thing. Okay? And then he continues on a pretty lengthy teaching that we could make 10 sermons out of, but that's where we'll stop. So my first observation is, whoa, John ramps up the tension really, really quick, the way he presents it, just really quick. It goes from, in, in the other ones, it's more of a, the other gospels, it's more of a slow burn. They're, yeah, they're a little bit irritated, and then they're a little bit madder, and then they want to kill him later, but John just gets right to the point. Um, the re- Jewish religious leaders want Jesus dead, and it's not, and it's not all the Jewish uh, religious leaders. Last week, we heard fr- about Nicodemus from Amy, and you know he seemed to be... Um, curious or maybe a little bit uh, sympathetic toward what Jesus was doing, but there was a what Jesus was doing, a group plotting his death. That kind of made me curious, so I really do in, in, in a Jewish society. And it said this, it says, um, rabbis are supposed to teach and guide the faithful of Judaism in the ways God would have them live. I thought that was a pretty cool thing. Jesus was, kind of do, was doing that. And so were the other rabbis. But wow, do they not want him part of it. Right? They didn't want him to be any part of it. So why do they plot out murder against Jesus? And it's really cool. John chapter 5 actually tells us, right? I don't have to come up with anything. It says um, they were angry. They, they were angry that he was working on the holy day of the week, and then they were incensed to plot evil that he claims that his working is equal with God's work. So I have to go through a second observation, a little bit more work on this word equal. John is not saying that Jesus sees God work in like one area of the world and then goes and copies that in another area of the world. Okay, he's just, he just doesn't copy what God is doing. The, word, the Greek word is isos, and it does mean equal, or in some translations you may have read on your Bible version there, as the same, the work was the same. But the word implies closeness. I mean close, closeness, like fusing together of uh, the same or equal. So that when God is at work Jesus is, and Jesus says, I am doing the same, he's doing the identical work with the power and authority alongside God. So that's how the, the, Jew, and the Jewish leaders obviously recognize this. They're like, whoa, this guy, father, son, he's claiming to be Yahweh himself. So of course that gets them all mad and, they go out to get Jesus. But anyway, so that's a little bit of work. I'm going to try to keep it simple, and we're just going to, in the evidence portion of this, we're just going to go through some of those things that God did and see if Jesus is doing 
likewise, or the same, okay? And I'll make it, that's how I'm going to make it simple. When God uses his power and authority over all of creation, to example, heal a lame man at a pool. Jesus is also there yielding that same power and authority as Yahweh God to heal. Jesus is Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. And the only way that could be true is if two were actually one. See why the baptism story is so important to this uh, today. So it's blasphemous to the ancient religious Jews, but, um, and I don't think that surprises anybody. Does that, does that surprise anybody that I can stand up here and say the, the early Jewish Christians believe that Yahweh is, I'm sorry, that Jesus is Yahweh God? It, it isn't because there's been 2,000 years of history that has gotten to us to this place where that's just what we sing about. That's what, what we do, okay? So it's not so surprising to this audience, completely surprising to an ancient audience. So... What did Jesus do, um, and, and, and did it in an equal status like God does it? Okay, so God first creates. He turns what's described chaos into order. Did Jesus do that? Obviously, today, this, this lame man at the pool goes through a transition of complete chaos in his life. He, can't, he can do nothing. He can't even get up to heal him, him, his own self to one that's now walking around in the temple. Uh, so... Jesus gives life, just as God gave life originally, to muscles and tendons and ligaments, and then they start moving. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Since we're speaking about a pool of water, let's say the Old Testament, Yahweh has power and authority over nature, and that's often represented in the Old Testament as the waters, okay? He separates them, he causes them to return and flood the earth. And when the Israelites are wandering in the desert, God tells Moses, strike a rock a couple times and water gushes out. If you are following the reading plan and you're up to John chapter 5, you've already read of a Jesus miracle with water at a wedding in Cana, okay? He, uh, he, he oh yeah, there's this, the wine runs out, chaos ensues, what do we do, what do we do? This is very important to this wedding. Jesus takes charge at the direction of his mom, that's interesting, um, and uh, changes the water into wine. So, a power and authority over nature. Here's a biggie. Jesus forgives. It, this is a biggie because the ancient scriptures all set up through a, uh, a temple system and a sacrifice system that Yahweh God was the forgiver of sins. And the priests were kind of the intermediaries that work it. But ultimately, Yahweh forgives. Again, earlier in John chapter 2, Jesus enters the table, I'm sorry, enters the temple and throws over the tables, drives out the sacrificial animals, and basically accuses the temple priest of corruption in, make, in making forgiveness now an economic activity. We're benefiting, we're financially benefiting from forgiveness. Then he goes out, outside the temple and he walks around the countryside forgiving sins. And it's, and it's kind of really no big deal. He just says in a very passive way, like, your sins are forgiven. And he says it implicitly, I think, in the in a two stories that preceded, uh, or in the two stories are John chapter 5 and the woman at the well. He just says, go and sin no more. It's kind of implicit. You are forgiven. I'm taking care of what's brought you here. Go and live righteously. 
you know. So, yeah, he goes around and forgives people, and that's only Yahweh's, traditionally, that's only Yahweh's responsibility. And we could go on all day with evidence from the Gospels of the work of Jesus um, and of the Father. He teaches in wisdom that exceeds the teaching of the day, right? He defeats and drives out demons. He raises the dead. He provides food to thousands of people from a little boy's lunchbox, basically. <laughs> Heals the sick, gives sight to the blind. He seeks out the lowly and elevates them. That's pretty much what we see Yahweh God do all throughout the Old Testament, is seek out the lowly and elevate their status. And we could go on and on, but I, don't, I do need to kind of bre- begin to bring this to a close. So it's easy to see in the scripture that Jesus goes around doing God's work. Jesus' work is God's work. But it wasn't just as an example for his followers to see. And I think this is really important to the whole story. It's not just, Jesus didn't do this because he just wants his followers to see an example. He is the example for sure. But he's also the power and authority that is doing it. Okay, that's really important, really important. And this kind of stuff is in every gospel and evidence is quite honestly overwhelming. So I mentioned we all kind of are on board with that. We can, we can get on board with that because we've been taught that, and it's just that's what the Christian church believes. So what do I do with this evidence, this portion of the evidence? I already believe it. What does it practically mean today to me? So that's a really good question. Thanks for asking. Uh, because I've got one more fact and it's amazing. It just it kind of blew my mind when I came to the realization. And it's really simple, but it just is so that it's so obvious. But um, I want to present that as a my closing argument. Uh, it's another example. It's not another example of what he did, but how he yielded the power and authority of God. Okay, so we'll get this. Let me walk you uh, through it. Oh, yeah, that's right. There it is. You already know. <laughs> and this is my fault. That, that wasn't the uh, Colby back there. It's exactly how I told her to do it, and then I forgot. Um, he shares his power. Okay. Not only what he did, but how does he do it? He shares the power and authority that he has. And I'll walk you through this. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. Then we're going to hit every book in the Bible up until then, and we'll be out at 2.30. Okay, no, we're just going to start in Genesis chapter 1. We have the days of God's creation. Days 5 and 6, he does something really, really remarkable. He shares with the birds, the fish, the land animals, and the humans the ability to multiply themselves. Up to that point, God was doing all the work, digging in the dirt, or, and forming, well, the animals were popping up out of the dirt, apparently, how it describes, and God was forming the man, right? To this point, God is the only, only creator of life bringing into this world, and it's subject to his power only. On those two days, he blessed by commanding, be fruitful and multiply. And again, it went out to fish, it went out to animals, so rabbits are really good at it. We're really good at it. We have four kids, um, so we're, we're good about that fruitful and multiply thing. 
God shared his authority and power to create new life. I'd never really thought about it like that. That's amazing. He's a, he's a generous God. Right from the beginning, he's a generous, generous God. He gives a second blessing to humankind only on day six. He invites man and woman to join him and share in his authority to cultivate and care for the earth. He has, he's you know, one of a kind, the ultimate power. And he says to humankind, come and join me in it. I'm going to share with you. Build, conserve, plant, cultivate, invent, write music, use your imaginations, fuse together with the wisdom of God, and rule this earth alongside him, safeguarding the blessings for all of creation. Okay. That's what he's sharing. He shares it twice. That's the Father. I'm going to have the worship band kind of come back up here real quick. Jesus does the same. In John chapter 14, he's talking to his disciples and he tells them he, he's going to be leaving soon. They're confused. They don't quite understand what he's saying. He ignores their confusion. And he says, it's a good thing when I leave because when I do, the Holy Spirit is going to come down and reside in you, in each of the believers. And then in... Uh, at the end of Mark, he says, he you know, gathers his, his disciples, and there's a good many of them, much more than just 12 at this point. And he says, go into all the earths, proclaiming the gospel, baptizing, and just being stewards of the name of Jesus in all of the earth, and here's the power to do it. And, and 50 days later, we see Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit descends on the believers, Okay. And they're empowered. They're empowered for ministry. And the really neat thing about this sharing of power that Jesus gave to his disciples is we get access to that too. Today, we have access to that power of ministry and discipleship, all of that, because we have the Holy Spirit. May we not, I guess this is kind of my prayer for overall for the service today, may we not leave our blessing uncultivated. I need to work it. I need to partner with Christ and work that blessing. So that's, I think, a reason to celebrate. Okay? So we're going to celebrate today with communion. I don't know how you are. My wife, she's a prepper. She would have this all done right now. I wouldn't, so I'd go through that awkward phase of pulling everything out together. How, do we have... A lot of preppers in here? Or do we, are we all doing it at the last minute? I'm, that's cool. I like doing it at the last minute. Okay. So we're going to go through a communion. It'll be a little bit different than we, nor we would normally hear because I just want to emphasize some stuff uh, from today. And then we're going to sing that last song. Keep an eye on that Yahweh, Yahweh, Jesus, Jesus um, verse. It's really cool and it really puts an exclamation point on this service. Um, so, if, you, if you're ready, take the bread. Lord, I just thank you so much oh, for the realization that at the, the, at the gospel authors are telling us that you came. You came to save not only the people of Israel, but all of humanity with your body, becoming human. It had to be done that way. It's it's, that's the way that it has to be completed as a human being 
has to be the Savior. It has to be the Messiah. I'm so grateful it is you, Jesus, because people, people look at different characters and say, and then they claim a Messiahship-like thing, but really what you see when you examine that is a, is a full pulling in of that power and a, and a, and a, a I don't know, just wanting to keep it close and not sharing it. But you, you displayed and you taught us. We share that power. We share that power. And it's ours today to go out and bless. And it's ours today to go out and disciple and to proclaim that your name, that you came in human flesh. So let's take the bread together. And Lord Jesus, the cup a picture of your blood spilt out for us, but also a picture of life. In the ancient cultures, they they believed that the blood was the life of, uh, of of our being. And so to spill blood was tragic. Your story, Lord, is tragic, but it's also celebrating. With your spilled blood, Lord, you cover our sins and you cover our misunderstandings and our arguments and whatever we're going through, Lord. And you say, you are forgiven. I'm thankful for that. We'll take the cup together. Let's sing a song.